This is Finding Center, a daily half-hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Coming Together in Zion. Marlene Williams, an Associate Clinical Professor of Counseling Psychology at Brigham Young University when this devotional address was given, will share her talk entitled, A Gospel of Relationships. I'm very grateful for my affiliation with this university and feel it a great honor and responsibility to speak to you this morning. Five of my children have also enjoyed attending classes at BYU. I remember one of them suddenly becoming aware of changes in his life after he entered BYU following his service as a missionary. He dated a lot in high school and had a lot of fun just hanging out and having fun with girls. And after his mission, he expected to resume the same kind of casual fun and games. He returned from his first post-date mission, however, somewhat pale and shaken. When I asked about the date, he replied, This is not just high school fun and games. These women are playing with real bullets. (laughs) Yes, you're not just playing a game at this stage of life. This is for real. The young adult years lay the foundations for your future. Changes in relationships are one of those most powerful challenges. Leaving home and the family environment, living with roommates, making new friends, and laying the relational foundations for eventually marrying and building a family of one's own are challenges that become very real. Relationships form the very basis of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ taught that all of the gospel laws hang on our ability to love God and others. All of God's laws are ultimately laws of love. Every commandment is given in love for you and concern for your happiness. Every commandment ultimately tests your ability to love him and your fellow man. Just as God has given a gospel of relationships, Satan proposes counterfeit principles that eventually lead to the destruction of relationships, both with God and with others. God teaches you to love others and to learn to live in a Zion society. Satan encourages jealousy and uncharitable judgments. These keep you from feeling close and connected with other people. God teaches you eternal progression and faith in the atonement, while Satan teaches its counterfeit perfectionism that destroys your confidence in both yourself and others. God teaches of eternal marriage where love can last forever. But Satan encourages relationships that are built on selfishness and end when they become inconvenient. I would like to discuss these three principles and their counterfeits in the context of what I have learned about relationships from the gospel of Jesus Christ, from my work as a clinical psychologist, and from 34 years of happy marriage. I once took my grandson to a seafood restaurant. They had a huge tank full of live lobsters. My grandson enjoyed watching with awe as he watched the lobsters move around in the tank, seemingly oblivious to the fact that they would soon be selected for somebody's dinner. My grandson watched entranced for a while, and then he asked me, Granny, there's no lid on the tank, and it's not very deep. Why don't the lobsters just crawl out and go home, and then nobody will eat them? We watched for a few minutes more, and then I noticed a curious phenomena. If one of the lobsters began to crawl out of the tank, the other lobsters would grab and pull and tug and try to pull that lobster back in the tank. So then none of them could escape and go home because they were all too busy pulling each other back into the tank. 
I wondered what would happen if they could ever figure out that if they could lift and build and help each other, there wouldn't be any more lobster on the menu of that restaurant. Sometimes people behave like lobsters. If one gets a little ahead or looks like they might have figured a path to safety, others clamor to pull them back. And in so doing, no one escapes. Look around you. Notice how much people vary. They vary not only in their appearance, but also in their personalities, in their life experiences, in their challenges, and in their missions here on earth. We learn from the scriptures that not all are given every gift unto them. The scriptures also teach us that we are all given weaknesses in order to teach us humility and compassion. We also are all different so that we might each have something to contribute and some way to belong. When we love each other and have respect for those different abilities, we prepare ourselves to live in a celestial order. Each person edifies the other, and then the whole can become a Zion society. God teaches us to love one another, and yet you may still find that you experience yourself having thoughts and feelings that are less than loving. Sometimes it is a challenge to stop being jealous or to wrongly judge or to compete with one another. We all see through a glass darkly. And our personal experience is limited. So it's easy to look at another person's situation and believe that we see it accurately when in fact we do not. It's easy to believe that you can work out another's salvation because you know what's wrong with their life. However, we do not always know of another person's private challenges, sorrows, and disappointments. But even more importantly, we do not know what is God's unique plan for that person's life, and we may risk prescribing the wrong solutions. When we judge uncharitably and attempt to prescribe solutions for other people's life, we run the risk of speaking counter to the Lord's will for that person. Let me illustrate this concept with an object lesson. Here is a pair of glasses that were prescribed especially for me. The optometrist did a very careful examination of my eyes and discovered that I have some very unique needs in order to see correctly. These glasses are bifocals. They're specially ground for a prescription that's a minus 11 in one eye and a minus 13 in the other. Now, I suspect that there are very few individuals in this audience that would see well out of these glasses. Just think what your experience would be like if I insisted that you wear my glasses every day to do your work. They work great for me. I see very well out of them. So what if I assumed that they would be perfect for you and I imposed that solution on you? You would be miserable, and you would probably resent me for imposing the wrong prescription upon you. But even more importantly, you could not do the work that is yours alone if you were to use my prescription. God is the one who must fit the prescription for each of us. He has the knowledge and the wisdom to know our unique needs. How does He reveal His will to an individual? One of the greatest gifts you have to work out your own salvation is the gift of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost can help us each to understand what the Lord would have us do. The Holy Ghost, however, is like the liahona of old in that it works on condition of our obedience to commandments. In addition, we have the words of both ancient and modern prophets— We can trust the Holy Ghost to help us to understand their words in the context of our own lives. We can also have more personal instruction from prayerful temple attendants, patriarchal blessings, and additional priesthood blessings. We must be very careful not to interfere with these spiritual processes 
in each other's lives by gossiping, judging, or giving uninspired advice that may come from our own biases, prejudices, or blind spots, however well-meaning they may be. I did a study on LDS women and depression that showed that LDS women who relied on a process of personal spiritual introspection, reading the scriptures, and then seeking answers and spiritual confirmation from the Lord through prayer, had better mental health than those who were overly concerned about judgments, gossip, and evaluation from others who have not been given any divine authority to do so. Another reason that it is difficult to escape the trap of uncharitable judgments and jealousy is because you live in a world that is constantly evaluating and judging you. So many opportunities and evaluations are based on beating out someone else. The world teaches you that you have no right to self-esteem unless you are first, get the highest grade, be the number one, or win a competition. There is only room at the top for a few in this celestial world. Nevertheless, you are not here to learn how to prepare to live in a celestial world. You are here to learn to prepare yourself to obtain celestial glory. And there is room for all who qualify in the celestial kingdom. Entrance is not determined by winning a competitive race. All who enter into covenants set by God and then keep those covenants can qualify. You need not be the swift nor the strong, the most beautiful, the most talented, the thinnest, the strongest, or the highest achiever. What God requires of each of us is that we do whatever is our unique mission on earth and stay in the race that eventually culminates with exaltation and eternal life. When we are consumed with competition, we lose sight of that which God has given to us personally. When we fail to value our own gifts and instead covet those of others, we risk losing the chance to magnify our own calling in life. We cannot rise to the full measure of our own creation if we are continually trying to be someone else. A second pair of opposing principles is becoming perfected through Christ in the Atonement versus Satan's counterfeit of perfectionism. Christ's admonition, Be ye therefore perfect, is not a command to immediately possess all skills, all knowledge, and good qualities right now. It is rather a commandment to enter into a covenant process that involves repentance, change, and growth. This process is dependent upon the Atonement of Christ, which makes repentance possible. President Joseph Fielding Smith clarified this concept in saying, quote, Salvation does not come all at once. We are commanded to be perfect, even as our Father in heaven is perfect. But it will take ages to accomplish this end, for there will be greater progress beyond the grave. And it will be there that the faithful will overcome all things and receive all things, even the fullness of the Father's glory, end quote. Have you ever wondered how perfectionism influences relationships? Perfectionists experience excessive shame in having weaknesses and in making mistakes. They believe that they are only of value if they are performing perfectly in all that they do. Perfectionists may also believe that other people must excel and perform in all areas of their life or they are inadequate and unworthy. Close relationships, however, provide us to a ringside seat to each other's struggles, sensitivities, and shortcomings. If you demand instant perfection from yourself or others, it becomes difficult to share your struggles and disclose your weaknesses for fear of losing your relationships. 
then there is no way to provide support for each other in overcoming these weaknesses and challenges. Alma, at the Waters of Mormon, as he went to baptize his followers, told them that bearing one another's burdens is one of the first covenants of baptism. When we can openly discuss our weaknesses and problems without fear of rejection or ridicule, you can create a safe place in the relationship. Having the safety to explore those problems in an empathic and caring relationship facilitates the kind of self-examination that is necessary for change and growth to take place. When you can let go of your perfectionism, it is then easier to feel emotionally close to others. Ironically, we often love those people the most whose weaknesses and struggles that we know. Learning how to have close friendships is one of the best ways to prepare for marriage. Whether or not you have the opportunity to date, meet a romantic partner, or marry at this stage of your life, you can still progress towards that goal by learning how to have good friendships with others. The third principle that I would like to discuss is God's plan for eternal marriage versus Satan's plan to destroy relationships. Love has been described as friendship that has caught fire. Learn how to be friends first as the foundation for your relationship. Then add the capstone of romantic attraction, a relationship where you can be friends and share your thoughts, your feelings, your beliefs, your values, activities, and interests with one another is more likely to stay on fire than one that can only share physical attraction. That capstone of attraction can then be a great gift from God. When you use that attraction as God is intended and keep it within the bounds that the Lord has set, it has the force and the power to keep the friendship of marriage on fire and forge a bond of love between a man and a woman that can last through all of eternity. God created you in His image so that you might become like Him. The Lord teaches in Latter-day Revelation that one of the purposes of the earth's creation was to provide the opportunity for marriage, which enables us to progress towards exaltation. And again, verily I say unto you, that whoso forbiddeth to marry is not ordained of God, for marriage is ordained of God unto man. Wherefore it is lawful that he should have one wife, and they twain shall be one flesh, and all of this that the earth might answer the end of its creation. Many young people fear making a commitment to marriage because they fear that they cannot keep the love alive. Others may also mistakenly believe that if I can only find the right one, then my marriage will be perfectly happy all the time and will never have any problems. How do you stay in love with someone through all of the challenges of real life, raising children, disappointments, trials, hardships, and discovering each other's weaknesses and vulnerabilities? Heinz Kohut is a psychologist who studied human relationships. He stated, Love is the very painful realization that other people are real. A person may enter marriage with the belief that if my spouse truly loves me, he or she will always think what I think, want what I want, and feel what I feel. Then I'll know that I've married the right person. But if you believe this, then it's then easy to believe that any differences between you are a betrayal of your love or a sign that you are incompatible. You may even then believe that you must compel your spouse to become a replica of yourself in order to become compatible. But in reality, all marriages have differences. People enter into marriage having different genetics, different backgrounds, childhood experiences, family dynamics, traditions, and personal meanings of events. When you can understand your spouse through the lens of their own background and experiences, 
It can help you to have a more empathic and accurate understanding of their behavior. In troubled marriages, individuals are often quick to jump to the most condemning negative explanation for their spouse's behavior. You can explain most behaviors in more than one way. And when multiple explanations are available, choosing with charity and compassion will strengthen the goodwill in the marriage. It's helpful to communicate that goodwill and good intentions to one another. Let me share a personal story of how I learned this lesson. When I was first a young bride, I noticed that my husband and I had differences in our needs for orderliness. My husband was a scientist, and he performed best under conditions of exactness. I have a more creative temperament, and I perform best when I can act more spontaneously. I began to notice that he would follow me around as I did creative projects and clean up everything before I'd even finished. I interpreted this as a criticism of my housekeeping, and I felt very threatened and hurt. I thought, he thinks I'm a bad wife because I'm not as orderly as he is. When I tearfully confronted him with what I perceived as his displeasure with me, he was genuinely surprised. He explained that he recognized that I did not enjoy cleaning up, and he honestly desired to do something to lighten my responsibilities and make my creative projects more fun for me. He further explained that he enjoyed organizing things, and he saw this as a way that he could show his love for me by doing something that he did well. When we were able to communicate honestly and non-defensively with one another, the bad feelings went away. It really helped me that he could express verbally his good intentions to me so that I could understand him more accurately. But it also helped him that I could trust in those good intentions instead of judging his behavior wrongfully. Often those differences between marriage partners are what attracted you to each other in the first place. Those differences can help fill in the gaps in the abilities that may be missing in our own personality and help to round out the family. For example, when a child falls off his bike, one parent might say, You're okay. Come on, get up and try again. The other parent may respond with, Are you okay? Do you need a Band-Aid? These subtle differences between the two parents can often help the child to get a more balanced experience in the family than if one parent's style must always prevail. The child needs to learn both courage as well as tenderness. And if the parents get caught in an argument over whose response is correct, the child may miss the benefit of the gifts of both parents. When couples disagree, they often waste time and emotional energy trying to attach blame to each other. Each believes that the other is at fault and that convincing their spouse of his or her guilt will then solve the problem because the problem is their fault. They may also believe that nothing can change in the marriage unless their spouse changes first. So this argument goes back and forth like a ping-pong ball, but nothing ever really changes. For example, the first may say, You're mean, and you're mad all the time. Then the other responds with, Well, I'm only mad because you're always telling me what to do. Then it goes back to the first. Well, I have to tell you what to do because you're selfish and I can't get you to do anything that I ask you to. Then it goes back to the second. Well, I only do that because you always nag me. (laughs) Sound like arguments you've heard? In this kind of a dialogue, neither will accept the responsibility for their own need to grow because neither will let go of what they cannot change in their partner. So it remains a battle of who must change first. Neither will accept the challenge to grow and become more like Christ unless the other goes first. Accepting responsibility is the beginning of real personal power in relationships. If you can be courageous and loving with yourself, you can begin to find the strength to look at your own personal areas of needed growth. You are then empowered to have a very different experience. 
You no longer need to experience yourself as a victim of another's behavior who cannot grow because of another person. Even when you cannot change the other person, you can still choose to continue your own growth towards becoming a celestial partner. Although the relationship may not be perfect, it can still become a means through which you can grow towards your own perfection and becoming like Christ. Taking responsibility for our own growth requires both love and faith. When we are willing to lovingly examine our own lives, we become aware of our own need for the Atonement. This draws us closer to Christ. As we struggle with our own weaknesses, we develop empathy for how hard it is to change, and we become less angry with our spouse for not being able to change as quickly as we want him or her to change. We can then acknowledge our own dependence upon the Atonement, and we realize how much Christ loves us. Christ did not wait to love us until we were perfect, had overcome all of our weaknesses, or had fully developed our ability to love Him in return. He loved us first and was willing to show that love by suffering in Gethsemane and dying on the cross for our sins, our infirmities, and weaknesses. By drawing closer to Christ, we can build our own spiritual and emotional reserves and have more love and patience to give to our spouse. Ironically, it's often your own capacity to love that then makes you more lovable to others. Learning how to love requires that we stretch and extend ourselves in service to another. When we truly love, service can be experienced as a gift that we freely choose to give to the other rather than a chore or a burden that is demanded. When we are willing to sacrifice in order to provide dependable, consistent concern for the life, welfare, and feelings of each other, love can be kept alive through life's difficult challenges. Sometimes individuals are afraid of service because they may confuse service with subservience, subjugation, or loss of power. The Lord's plan for relationships does not include any form of unrighteous dominion or dictatorship. Power in marriage can only be handled upon principles of righteousness. Real power in marriage comes from doing service in a spirit of love, kindness, gentleness, meekness, and love unfeigned. This kind of service to another can bind that other to us insomuch that they are in the relationship because they choose it freely, not because they are forced or compelled. In this kind of a relationship, no one need fear submission to the other. Paul's admonition to wives to submit yourselves unto your husbands has sometimes erroneously been used as justification for unrighteous dominion in marriage. But a more careful reading of the surrounding verses, however, makes it clear that the command is to submit to love rather than to submit to domination. Husbands are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the Church and gave Himself for it. Submitting to love, then, means that we allow our hearts to be vulnerable to a righteous and loving husband. We become more tender-hearted and gentle with our husband when we submit to love. We let ourselves be vulnerable to those tender, loving feelings. We then no longer experience kindness and service as a subjugation or as a burden. It is a gift of love. When both husband and wife provide consistent, dependable service to one another to show that love, no one need fear vulnerability, subjugation, nor loss of power. 
Some worldly philosophies suggest that service and sacrifice to others will cause you to lose your own identity. President Spencer W. Kimball gives us wise counsel for how service can strengthen our identity rather than diminish it. He stated, quote, There is great security in spirituality, and we cannot have spirituality without service. So often our acts of service consist of simple encouragement or of giving mundane help with mundane tasks. But what glorious consequences can flow from mundane acts and from small but deliberate deeds? In the midst of the miracle of serving, we find ourselves. Not only do we find ourselves in terms of acknowledging guidance in our lives, but the more we serve our fellow man, and I would add our spouse, the more substance there is to our souls. Indeed, it is easier to find ourselves because there is so much of us to find. End of quote. A marriage need not be perfect and without challenges to be one of great joy and peace. Peace does not come from a lack of problems, disruptions, and difficulties. But peace comes from knowing that one's life is in harmony with the will of God. When we struggle in important relationships and we lack the wisdom that we need, these problems can bring us to our knees in prayer. The Lord can then instruct us in how to live more closely to an eternal model of marital relationships. You need not fear the challenges of marriage if both you and your spouse will both commit yourselves to a process of learning how to become eternal celestial companions. Elder George Q. Cannon said it beautifully, quote, We believe in the eternal nature of the marriage relation, that men and women are destined as husband and wife to dwell eternally. We believe that we are organized as we are, with all of these affections, with all of this love for each other for a definite purpose, something far more lasting than to be extinguished when death shall overtake us. We believe that when a man and a woman are united as husband and wife, and they love each other, and their hearts and feelings are one, that love is as enduring as eternity itself, and that when death overtakes them, it will neither extinguish nor cool that love, but that it will brighten and kindle into a pure flame that will endure throughout eternity. End of quote. If you've not yet found some of these blessings in your life, do not give up. God knows the righteous desires of your heart. He has promised his children that these blessings will eventually be available to all who are faithful and will put their trust in the Lord throughout the heartaches, trials, and disappointments of mortality. I bear my personal testimony that the gospel of Jesus Christ, as found in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is the truth. I bear my personal testimony that in God's own time and in His own way, the great blessings of eternal marriage and eternal family can belong to each of us through our faithfulness. Although God has not revealed all to us in this life and we must walk by faith, He has promised us that through the infinite power of the Atonement of Christ, we can come forth in the resurrection of the just. We will then be free from the thorns and afflictions of mortality and sealed into loving family relationships that will never be taken away, but that will last for all eternity. I am very thankful for my beloved family and friends who have helped me to appreciate and want these great blessings. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. 
Join us every weekday for a half hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Coming Together in Zion. Marlene Williams gave her talk entitled A Gospel of Relationships. Speeches on Finding Center are often edited for broadcast. Find links to the full talks and access the rest of our Finding Center episodes on the free BYU Radio app, available wherever you get your apps. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.